bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Adam, welcome to the Round Canada Podcast. Appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me. So Adam Weir, you are a fishers biologist, fisheries biologist with the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. Uh, how, how long have you been in this position? Yeah, I've been in the position since uh, 2017 is when I came on board and uh, just dove right into all of the fisheries related files that we have uh, across Ontario. So Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters have been so great to us. Uh, we love the organization. They're like, uh, I've always said, they're a champion for uh, hunters across Canada, not just Ontario and anglers because of the national scale issues that OFA tends to um, approach. Before the podcast, we were talking about, you know, the economic study that uh, that. that OFA commissioned a few, you know, a few years ago and maybe just because this is a fishing podcast, just throw those numbers again for Ontario that we talked about before the show, numbers of anglers and dollars. Yeah, for sure. It's something that you can find in Ontario's provincial fish strategy, Fish for the Future, that was published uh, back in 2015, I believe, uh, not too long ago, but 1.4 million licensed anglers, and they contribute $2.2 billion annually uh, to the provincial economy. So uh, it uh, stands to reason that anglers, uh, you know, in terms of their socioeconomic con- contributions, it's it's right up there for sure. Wow. That's, that's, that's huge. That is a huge, (laughs) huge segment of the Canadian outdoor sector. So sorry to interrupt you there. I just wanted to thank you. Um, Just recognizing OFAH and that, you know, it's Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters, but we do have that federal uh, scope too. A lot of the work I do has to do with the, the Federal Fisheries Act. And currently there's the Fish and Fish Habitat Protection Program and they, um, have put out these modules on their website, Talkfish uh, Habitat, and uh, that's something that we're heavily involved from cumulative effects and uh, uh, different frameworks and shaping uh, policies related to fish and fish habitat. It's a it's a huge thing that we've been involved with for a number of years now, actually. I've always admired your organization because you are, like I said, involved in, in a lot of those those national scale issues and like the spillover effect and the benefit is grows across the country. And I've encouraged people before, even if you don't live in Ontario, <clears throat> become a member of the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters because it's like they're, they're supporting you in some way, shape or form, regardless of what province or territory you live in. So, Yeah, yeah, it's true. We have uh, 100,000 uh, members, subscribers, and supporters, and over 700 member clubs a- as well. And uh, it's one of those things where, um, you know, you don't really want it to come across as, as cheesy or something or like a like a car salesman or something. But it's, uh, you know, maybe it's not necessarily OFAH that you want to be a member of, but I would argue that anybody who's an angler, hunter, trapper, all three, any combination of those, just be a part of something bigger than yourself because uh, actively under that united voice is where you have the biggest say. So when we're responding as an agency to uh, government proposals that come down the pipe, whether it's provincial, federal, uh, or even at municipal smaller scales as well, uh, um, it's important, again, just to have that uh, larger voice than just yourself. 
that's a good message. I've also heard it said that when you belong to these organizations, uh, the numbers are in power because what the organization does is they amplify your voice politically. And, and I thought that was a great way of, of putting it too. And always encourage folks to belong to their provincial or territorial, you know, federation or association because you guys do great stuff. And one of the great things that you're working on right now, uh, speaking of proposals, is it sounds like there are two fisheries management proposals that are being reviewed and kind of on the table for discussion for Ontario for fisheries management zone 15 and 10. So yeah. I want to dive in and let listeners across the country kind of know what's what's happening there. So start at the most basic level where you think you need to start folks with uh, on these proposals and let's let's kind of dig into the details a little bit. Yeah, I've it was a tough one for me when you originally reached out because, uh, you know, I'm so in the weeds with obviously everything that's uh, Ontario based here. So uh, I forget that it's might not be the same everywhere else. So I was like trying to figure out like, what's the best way to like, what's my strategy here? How do I um, make this communicate the information that I want to communicate so that in an understandable way and fisheries just inherently the really complicated complex from the regulations to managing fisheries to all of these sorts of things. So I made some notes because I don't want to uh, screw anything up, basically. Oh, but, geez, uh, I made you do homework. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, just uh, joking. But um, I think at a basic level, um, we had a major shift um, over a decade ago in Ontario. And that this basically this framework um, was implemented, and we've referred to it as the Ecological Framework for Recreational Fisheries Management in Ontario. So Ontario, previous to this framework, was divided all, all up into numerous uh, like fishing divisions is what they're called. So that was like the ecological unit that we would use to manage fisheries. So other places um, could be like a zone, a div division, or some sort of like unit like that. So we shifted over to having fisheries management units. So it amalgamated a lot of these divisions and it looked to manage fisheries in a different way. So where it's not as administratively challenging when you have like numerous one-off like um, areas that you're, that you're managing, broadening that, um, that um, like purview or, um, you know, way we manage fisheries to larger fisheries management units. Um, and so having this ecosystem-based or landscape level approach to fisheries management. Um, so with that, um, it was fully implemented in 2008. And with that, we saw um, advisory councils formed too. So when I'm talking about advisory councils, this is something that's um, not necessarily unique to Ontario, but something that, that we value quite a bit. It's where everybody, all the important stakeholders essentially get at a round table and collaboratively work with, in our case, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, the government. So be stakeholders like could be cottage associations, conservation organizations like the OFAH. It could be um, well-known anglers in uh, this fisheries management zone that are at the table. Um, so all these different People get together, share ideas, share expertise, and work alongside the government to come up uh, to basically go through the fisheries management pl planning process and come up with management strategies, which could be 
fishing regulations. It could be um, look developing stocking strategies, anything related to fisheries. It could even just be local access issues or something along those lines too. So it's just a, a platform, a stage for sharing information, essentially. Um, so moving on to, so just, we have the framework, we have fisheries management zones. That's these bigger ecological units we have. We have advisory councils that are part of this fisheries management planning process. And then at the same time, there was um, our monitoring and, and assessment program was um, implemented as well. So this is like looking at monitoring fisheries, again, in that broader broader context of the fisheries management zone, that ecological unit we talked about, and um, implementing the, the broad scale monitoring program. So this is uh, a gill netting program, and there's lots of other components too, like collecting uh, water chemistry information, doing aerial uh, surveys uh, of anglers during summer and winter periods. Um, and again, you, in that landscape level context, again. So um, that kind of paints a picture, I guess, of the fisheries management and monitoring system we have in Ontario. I don't really know exactly what it's like in other provinces. There's probably like uh, comparable things elsewhere, but but that's what we have structured here. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty comprehensive. So, yeah, no, that's. Uh, I I like this idea of the the ecological basis to your fish management zones. It's kind of that concept sort of came in probably in I don't know in the '90s. You know, in all resource management, uh, the watershed boundaries. You know, managing <clears throat> watersheds based on, you know, water. It's this watershed. It's where it's captured. Ends up this stream, this lake, out to the ocean, and it's like this defined ecological unit so um, that's a super cool way to approach fisheries as well because you know not all fish populations are interchangeable and their genetics are different and access is different in different you know zones and stuff so that that's a that's a that's a neat basis foundation for fisheries management yeah yeah it, it, exactly it's it's pretty unique and also unique on an international scale as far as i've been told as well um, a lot of places, you know, outside of our jurisdiction really look at it as, uh, you know, the, the, the way to really manage fisheries. So when we talk about these fisheries management plans, which, which we'll get to, I kind of had to set the stage there a little bit. Um, the data that we're referring to and the modeling that, that's, that's done, it's all really reflective of all that field work that has been done by the ministry and it feeds into that entire process. So again, that's kind of why I needed to set the stage there. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about too, Mark, before we dove into the fisheries management plan is that we have, um, I don't know if it's a unique licensing system here, but uh, there's two different types of recreational fishing licenses that we have. So one is referred to as a sport fishing license and the other is a conservation fishing license. So the difference between that is a, a sport fishing license, you pay a little bit extra, but your catch limit is higher. So whereas the conservation fishing license, it's you have a, a lower catch limit in terms of your daily catch and possession limits. And uh, and it's it's a, a cheaper license for people as well. It's less expensive. Very interesting. So if you are a sustenance, sustenance fisher person, you might get the one license because you're going to keep fish, you know, to have fish in your freezer and, and uh, eat that. Where say you're 
a fly fisherman that likes catch and release and kind of doing different things. It's sort of like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep fish. I'm not going to keep that many. So you would opt for, for a, a different license. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there's, there's mixed opinions about the, the two different uh, recreational licenses, but I think it, you know, it really provides people some alternative opportunities. And like you said, it sort of speaks to that, you know, individual that that type of angler that wants to uh, maybe harvest a little more fish and somebody, um, you know, even let's, for example, uh, musclelunge anglers, they typically are catch and release anglers. Uh, maybe a conservation license might be a little bit more suitable for their style of, of, of angling. So, um, so then I guess from there, that's sort of, uh, builds into the, the fisheries management plans that recently were posted for public comment. So we have the Environmental Registry of Ontario, and that's typically where these bigger um, proposals get posted for public comment. So you can go on, download the documents, read about them, and then submit directly onto the, uh, to the registry your feedback with these proposals. So um, just as an example, we could dive into fisheries management plan for FMZ 10. So again, the FMZ is the fisheries management zone, that ecological unit we talked about before. So the current walleye regulation as an example is no more than one greater than 46 centimeters. It's open on the January 1st to March 31st. And uh, then it reopens from the third Saturday in May to December 31st. And it's a catch limit of four and two. So the way we set it up in Ontario is that there'll be several options that you could choose from. Um, with respect to the walleye regulation. So option one is typically status quo, keep it the same, don't do anything approach. Option two in this example is to go to a, a none above 46 centimeters and maintaining um, the, the same season and maintaining the same catch limit. So a four and two. So when I say four and two, that's a four sport fishing license and a two under the conservation fishing license. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, so following what I'm throwing down, it's, it's completely, and so I'm trying to, uh, now you're doing a great job laying this out. I'm, I'm totally following you. So then, uh, the option three is looking at modifying the season and the catch and possession limits. So this would be a protected slot, uh, 43 to 60 centimeters and having, uh, um, no more than one greater than 60 centimeter rule, the same season and the same catch limit that four and two. So if we were to just to kind of rest on the walleye regulations here. So one thing with FMZ um, 10 is the, the data really indicates that there's pretty high levels of mortality going on with walleye populations. Uh, many lakes are below target biomass levels and most populations could be characterized as unsustainable. So you can understand that right now under the current regulation with that uh, one over 46 centimeters under the, under the season and the current catch and possession limit is that um, just generally what the data is suggesting that walleye populations are not doing well. So in terms of fisheries management, one of the available options is to do a regulation change. And that's where Option two, in terms of the advisory council and what they suggested to the ministry, and also something that the OFAH supports, is looking at none above 46 centimeters. So that option number two uh, under the catch and possession limit of four and two. So that's how we go through this process of, so it's like, you know, here are the proposals. 
that are being put forward. And then, you know, looking at the, the available options, looking at, um, you know, how the walleye populations in this example are doing at the FMZ level, and then what regulation options going to potentially lead to improvements within those populations. That's where lots of people I know in the conservation business in Canada talk about why you need to have objectives. You need to have population objectives, you need to have harvesting objectives, and then your data will then has to feed into that to generate some options, but everything is always, what are we trying to achieve here? So, you know, if your population's at B, um, but your target is A, how do you get from B to A? What are the various ways you can get there? You know, uh, yeah. sort of thing where folks get frustrated in this situation or any other situation is when we're making changes, but it's not clear, well, what is it we're trying? What's the outcome we want? What are we trying to achieve, right? And then nothing makes sense and and everybody's uh, throwing buns at each other at the, at the round table. So this sounds amazing. Like it does sound like you have very clear, you know, objectives, um, population targets. You're saying they're below sustainable levels. So we know where kind of that threshold is given the demand for, for, for fish and, and whatnot. And so the options are, how do we get to a sustainable level? So that, that's to me, good conservation management. Yeah, and I think you're really nailing it with uh, looking at the goals and objectives because I, I didn't touch on it earlier, but that's a, a big part of the fisheries management planning process. So at the council level within the advisory councils, along with looking at the data information from the broad scale monitoring um, program, it's also collaborating between collaboration between the government and stakeholders at the round table in like, what do we what do we want? Like, what are the objectives? What are the goals? These overarching sort of um, things uh, of that nature, nature. And then your regulations really feed into that too. Well, how do we achieve that? Well, op option two in this example appears to be the best option available. But one of the things is that it can be, I think maybe for humans in general, change is hard. You know, if you're used to having one fish that you keep that's over 46 centimeters and you can take that that lunker so to speak, home a lot of anglers out there re really value having that opportunity as well um so it can be hard to shift over i remember i was i'm a part of many advisory councils in in the province and um this uh the one over rule one over 46 centimeters was really performing poorly in another zone and uh, the ministry had gone through the process of doing this big presentation. They were speaking to the, the data and information and, you know, walleye populations were doing poorly in the zone. And it really appeared to be this one over rule that was causing the sustainability uh, concerns. And then at the end of the uh, presentation, the individual put up their hand and they were just like, well, I'd, but I want to keep a big fish. You know, so it was just like, you know, I don't know if there are, are you purposely not listening to the the facts and the science and data that's being shared it's like is the one over 46 centimeter fish really that important if it leads to population crashes every time uh the the data is is modeled every single output you know kind of leads to this crash so a lot of this we talked to it before you started your recording this balance between um you know what's something that's like socially sort of acceptable within the angling community, but you're also achieving 
you know, your uh, conservation goals and objectives like we talked about too. So it, it's not a easy job to be uh, kind of figuring these things, figuring these things out, you know. No, absolutely not. Because, you know, he here we are, you know, in, in modern times, but the legacy of the value, the meaning, the traditions and stuff of whether it's fishing or hunting and stuff goes back generations or, you know, centuries. And those are important values uh, to define what fishing is to people and then all of a sudden we're asking you know people people to change you know those sorts of things and and it's a real it's a real consideration it's a real factor and and you know hopefully those voices are are listened to as being like a real you know consideration to be on the table and then i think this is where agreeing on goals and objectives at the outset uh, probably really comes back to play for individuals going, yes, um, I want to catch a big fish, but I also believe that a sustainable fish population for the maximum biomass harvest for the maximum number of families, you know, that fish for food there is the overarching objective. So then I can recalibrate, you know, my comments or, or input and... <laughs> And yeah. maybe some people are not that good at it. They're just like, whatever, I want to catch a big fish. And <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing? You're wrecking our family's traditional fishing derby or whatever. So. <laughs> For sure. It's, uh, it's interesting, too. Like I said, uh, um, the OFAH is uh, part of uh, a number of advisory councils across the province. But uh, interestingly, this one-over rule, it's, it's used uh, quite frequently, I, I would say, in Ontario. So, uh, um, but also we have that broader perspective um, being a part of all these councils. So for example, in FMZ 15, um, the one over regulation for walleye that's there, it's it's underperforming. It's it's not doing so well. And walleye populations are appear to be suffering to a certain extent. Um, modeling and simulations were done with a one over rule in um, uh, Lake Nipissing and uh, walleye popular. It was that type of regulation is, is not very sustainable for Lake Nipissing. Another example, like we're talking about, and we already know that there's mortality and biomass concerns with walleye in FMZ 10. The one over rule also pops up in FMZ 14, where walleye populations are also seemingly not doing so well to attribute it necessarily just to that one over rule is taking it a little bit too far but it's one of those things where you start seeing the one over rule popping up a lot and then walleye populations not doing so well maybe to counter the the same point that i'm trying to make in northwestern ontario um they're you know they're walleye factories they they're just the productive capacity of those fisheries are just unique to the province in northwestern ontario where a one over rule in those FMZs, it might do uh, not too bad, you know, just because of the overall productive capacity, it can really overcome angling pressure and, and harvest and other sort of stressors and that sort of things where these other zones that I'm talking about are more like central Ontario and southern uh, Ontario and uh, where you kind of experience these rules and they're just, those fisheries are different. You know, it would be like comparing... Um, apples to oranges, oranges, so to speak. So when we talk about these things, it's important with fisheries and any sort of like fish or wildlife management, not to have that 
paintbrush and do those broad strokes and generalizing things. It just, uh, it doesn't work that, it doesn't work that way. But it's an interesting observation that we can make that the one over rule tends to not perform very well in these FMZs. And then we would argue a more sustainable approach is looking at a regulation change and eliminating that one over rule in particular with some of these uh, fisheries management zones we're talking about. Just to clarify here, the large fish that we're talking about wanting to conserve and protect. So are these your large breeding females in walleye? I know in pike, for example, those great big monsters are typically like your breeding females. Uh, halibut are the same way, those big, huge. And I think what they said something like anything over 100 centimeters, those big 100, 100 pound halibuts and stuff are often your breeding females. So the death of one female is like, you know, 100,000 eggs to the population. Is that what we're talking about here with walleye yeah, I, and the larger yeah. cohort? I, I, I wouldn't be able to throw uh, specific numbers, but just uh, in, in, a, in a simple way, those individuals that contribute the most to the, have that the most biological co contribution to the population. Uh, yeah, taking those individuals out um, appear to be a problem. <laughs> I mean, I think logically that sort of makes sense. And again, though, you could provide examples where, you know, a one over rule doesn't perform poorly as well. You know, so again, specifically with these zones, though, it's um, there's an opportunity here to to make a more uh, sustainable fisheries management move. And that's where uh, having none over 46 centimeters and even maintaining the same uh, catch limit, the four and two um, would would appear to, to work a lot better than what we have now. So it's it only makes sense to really go for that regulation change as far as I'm concerned. So. Yep. Yep. Thinking about conservation of the species, the future of angling in, in the province and, and the sustainability of, of an angler take. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like sustainability is like the key word there, like uh, meeting the current generation's needs without compromising those of the future. And I think like as anglers, hunters, trappers, it's important for us to really share that sort of perspective in any of these outdoor pursuits um, you want it to be around, you know, like I don't fish, uh, you know, I, I want to be catching fish, you know, I want to be having a, a good experience and likewise with any other of those activities too. So, yeah. Yeah. So what, what is the general sense of your membership, um, for these proposal changes for the two FMZs? Yeah. So it's, it, it depends. Uh, there's been some organizations I, I know of say um, local to FMZ 10 and I think it gets back to the conversation where that we had um, I think before we started recording here when we were chatting about uh, that the difficulty for for change and if you're used to something like moving away from that can be very difficult you know so I guess in our official feedback it's posted to our website anybody can go and and, and see it um, we'll provide say support for that option number two, none over 46 centimeters, and then provide some rationale. Be like, these are the reasons why this is, this is you know, the, the, this is what the data suggests. This is why we have the broad scale monitoring program. This is the only information really that we have available that we can use at our disposal to help guide fisheries management planning and decision-making and these sorts of things. So 
um, it might not necessarily be something that's aligned with everybody and you can't please everybody, but um, we would hope through our feedback that it's, um, that at least we could provide some sort of context to the current situation and the reasons why um, it might be a good idea to move away from that. So if there are people out there, you know, I'm hoping that I can convince them with that type of information, you know, and distill it to Mark, like these, these documents are huge. So the fisheries management plans that we have, there'll be hundreds of pages and there's background information associated with these too. That's also a hundred pages. So it's, you know, anglers or anybody member of the public, they're not necessarily taking the time to dive into the weeds. Like that's my responsibility. That's the OFAH can do that for you, so to speak. So, um, so maybe, um, you know, it, it's, we need to appreciate the, the sort of details and information um, that's, that's there with the, with the data and what it's suggesting. Um, and, and so, again, I hope the OFAH can, can really um, filter all of that extra stuff out. So it's just in this condensed, easy to understand sort of format. This is why we're doing it. The organization has like a, a statement posted, you said sort of recommendations and a rationale for uh, its support of the options in the two fisheries management zone proposals. Now, are your, the Federation's individual member clubs and organizations, they could, they could still submit oh, yeah. their comments, which may actually be variants of or maybe even opposing the Federation's uh, positions have a rationale, then all of those things become part of that bigger conversation and consideration for the decision makers at, at the end of this process. So are they they encouraged and are, are your federation clubs also engaging and providing their own thoughts? Well, like, absolutely. I, anybody, I would encourage anyone and everyone that has a stake in it to be submitting comments. Um, uh, a member messaged me and... Uh, their input on the Environmental Registry of Ontario was just like refer to OFAH's uh, submission. It can be as simple as that, as long as it were like, um, it's just important to provide your perspective and feedback, insight, especially at a local level too. And, and anglers that are impacted um, by the regulations, it's critically important. Um, it's also, we're lucky too, to have a seat on every FMZ advisory council in the province too. So um, we really have our, our foot in the door and, and because of that and because of our membership can, can really help uh, um, change. Like a good example maybe would be looking at uh, brook trout. So brook trout regulations within these uh, FMZs. So for example, for FMZ 10, the ministry intends to retain the current recreational angling regulation. So it, the season is from January 1st to September 30th, and it's um, sport and conservation license uh, catch limit of five and two. So our, and maybe I'll jump over to zone um, 15 as well. So there's also changes being proposed for Brook out there. And basically the zone wide regulation would look at eliminating a, a winter season, an entire winter season, for brook trout, where as you could well imagine, anglers might not be so happy about getting rid of that cultural tradition of winter fishing for, for brook trout, hard water fishing for them. So one thing for us that we take 
um, issue with is like, sure, there's regulation proposals in Ontario with these fisheries management zones, but we don't have, Ontario doesn't have a brook trout management strategy. This is a, a provincial priority, an election priority of the OFAHs. So it's difficult for us to stomach, you know, all of these one-off exception exceptions that are being proposed. So eliminating winter uh, fishing, as an example, in FMZ 15 on prime brook trout, natural brook trout lakes, they're looking at doing a, a, a bait fish ban as well. There's another kind of awkward regulation that they're looking at on prime natural lakes as well. That's a brook trout fishing only regulation. So you can't fish for anything else, any other sport fish or any other fish in general. And you can only fish for, for brook trout on some lakes. And, and we would argue though, that we need um, just this overarching policy overarching management direction for the conservation of brook trout as a species. And um, this idea, this concept was kickstarted back in 2017, actually, by the government of Ontario. And it was a great idea, one that we could get behind. There's workshops that were held. There's a document that was published. And this was supposed to be um, essentially the precursor to a, an Ontario's brook trout management strategy. But it fell by the wayside. It was put on the back burner. And um, and it could be could have been used to help in the development of these fisheries management plans as well. And maybe you have strategies embedded within that provincial policy document that these are the ways that will conserve them. All these sorts of things, are, you know, it's backed by science. It's backed by the the data. This is how we can better conserve brook trout. Um, they're a relatively vulnerable, sensitive cold water fish species. Um, they especially don't do well where in complex uh, community environments, uh, especially when non-native species are introduced into brook trout fisheries as well. Um, they just really thrive in depauperate systems. So depauperate would be uh, like there's not a lot of diversity. And, um, and so anyway, just looking at um, brook trout in this in this bigger way, they're also going to be, they're sensitive to, to climate change, obviously, because they have um, thermal requirements, um, cold water thermal requirements, groundwater upwellings, and climate change really, uh, well, obviously affects temperature. And that's, you know, one of these things that uh, determines the physiological processes of, of fish in a general sense. So you can understand how big of a threat that could be to brook trout populations. So Anyway, so we took a step back really in terms of, you know, maybe we can get behind FMZ 10 and retaining the brook trout regulation. Uh, but the caveat is like, well, let's do this provincial brook trout management plan. And then in FMZ 15, where they're, want, you know, choosing to, to close down the winter season, you know, taking a step back, you're putting the cart before the horse by doing these one-off exceptions. Like, let's see, let's, let's see a, again, a provincial brook trout management plan for them before we start doing these sorts of things yeah that comes that sounds like it comes back to what we were talking about earlier with the brook trout not having the plan there isn't the overarching goals and objectives of what we want for um you know biological and conservation needs of brook trout and the socioeconomic side of brook trout fishing nobody's really said this is our vision for brook trout management in the future and then all of a sudden it's like oh we need to uh seesaw 
ice fishing and you're like, okay, how does this fit in? Right? Like it's, that's what it sounds like. You're kind of going like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. And I don't like the idea of, um, you know, it's like shooting from shooting from the hip Yep. and there's, well, we need to do something for the sake yeah. of doing something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's an ad hoc approach that we would argue, like have that policy structure that really looks at how, how do we conserve uh, brook trout in the best way possible across the province and within all FMZs where uh, brook trout occur. And we have great examples, Mark, too, like Algonquin Provincial Park. I mean, everybody's heard of Algonquin Provincial Park. And uh, the the monitoring and assessment that goes on there is is unlike any other place possibly in Ontario, maybe across Canada, I'm not quite sure. But uh, there's a Harkness uh, laboratory there. And uh, they get great information. Um, Algonquin's a stronghold for, for brook trout. And we can really learn from what's going on there and apply it in, in, a, bigger, in a bigger scale. We also have aquatic ecosystem classification system in Ontario that the ministry has at their fingertips as it developed by the ministry. We could leverage that to better conserve brook trout. We have, um, um, uh, we don't have, I talked about broad scale monitoring. This is looking at strictly lakes. So it's looking at lentic systems where we need a, kind of a comparable broad scale monitoring program, but for flowing waters rivers, streams, and creeks, they're essential for brook trout and carrying out their life processes, but we're not looking at them. We're not monitoring them really in any way. Um, so that would be something that we would suggest to the ministry. Here's your, you know, the brook trout plan, like broad scale monitoring for flowing waters, like build, leverage your aquatic ecosystem classification system, look at non-lethal sampling um uh with your the techniques and methodologies that are being used to monitor and assess populations and, and land use practices as well mark these things it's one of those things where it's kind of funny where you can um pull that regulation regulatory lever um but if you have land use pra practices that conflict and threaten these fish populations like that's also a major thing that we need to to, to fix and the current um, like political climate, I guess you would say. Um, it's that open for business uh, a platform and it's looking at um, uh, removing barriers and red tape for uh, development projects. And there's been some um, environmental policies and these sorts of things in Ontario that have been, um, you know, gutted essentially. And I'm like, well, that's a major threat to Brookshire populations as well that we need to throw into this uh, conversation, but anglers are often the ones that are on the chopping block, you know? So there's a lot of broken heart these sorts of things. That, that is such a common theme that I've been talking about and others have been talking about clear across the country, uh, especially with, um, you know, salmon and steelhead fishing, you yeah. know, and they're, they're seeing, you know, commercial fisheries and their large catches and bycatches and, um, you know, even you know, the fishing that's going on in Alaska of runs that come into British Columbia and these conservation concerns. So uh, we're going to shorten the season or it's uh, no catch, you know, retention fishery or whatever. And, you know, the anglers are like, hey, man, we're just this little tiny, you know, <laughs> thing. And and we're the focus of all of all of the cutbacks. So that, that is such a common thread. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not arguing 
that, uh, you know, anglers are also a part of that solution and adjusting regulations. Uh, you know, it's important. We need to be making these considerations, but, you know, maybe it's a, a, a dam or some other barrier on a river that if it was removed, it would provide, you know, so much more access for whatever species it is to more spawning grounds and more spawning habitat and, uh, you know, more preferred, preferred available habitat as, as well. And so it's looking at things like that. And we talked about the Federal Fisheries Act earlier and the Fish and Fish Habitat Protection Program. And, um, you know, it's looking at managing and conserving fish and fish habitat in a better way, too. So, for example, there are a lot of routine projects, literally tens of thousands of routine projects that occur across the landscape that don't require uh, authorization. They don't require full reviews by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Um, and the there's no compensation or offsetting requirements either for these projects. And yet they're admittedly uh, causing death of fish or harmful alteration, disruption or, or disrupt, disruption or disruption of fish and fish habitat. So the harm to habitat is going like unchecked and unaccounted for and it's contributing to cumulative effects. So it's aggregating and it's magnified in a, in a different way, in a, in a bigger way, um, arguably than some of these larger scale uh, projects. So it would be one thing that we're really pushing for is looking for better compensation and recognition of these tens of thousands of routine projects and the harm to habitat that they're causing and looking at ways to, to offset these ecological losses. So uh, one idea that's been tossed around is looking at fees in lieu. So this is uh, not the best option, I would say, but it's better than what's being done now, which is no compensation and no offsetting for these routine projects, but a fee in lieu. So a developer pays a, a certain you know amount for whatever ecological loss it is. It's evaluated in some way, shape or form. That money could go into a conservation bank. That conservation bank could be used for doing large-scale habitat restoration work. It could go back into things like research to understand how to better offset uh, fisheries losses as well, because we, we do a bad job of, of offsetting. You know, artificial habitats compared to the real thing just don't work as well. So it's stuff like this that we're in the weeds, again, like taking it to that federal sort of context that uh, the OFAH and... Uh, our conservation partners like CWF and all of the others that are that are sort of uh, fighting for these things, I, I, I guess. So, uh, I I mean, you probably agree. I mean, there's there's like the regulation part, the management of the people part of these things. But man, uh, when you start to look at the weight of the habitat conservation issues and where our attention, you know, sh should be. Uh, I, I've always seen whether it's wildlife or or fisheries kind of across the country like our, our attention and focus needs to be more on biodiversity conservation and habitat conservation and, and, and enhancement. Um, it seems like the greater gains are to be made there um, than in constantly kind of like chiseling back um, hunter, hunters and anglers. Even locally where I live here in um, British Columbia, there's a valley uh, just over the Rocky Mountains from me called the Elk Valley. 
lots of big coal mines, forestry, a bunch of different land uses. There's been some cumulative effects, impact studies done there. They're concerned about West Slope cutthroat and water quality from um, effluents from the mines. Yet in one of the cumulative effects studies, they found that just from culverts on stream crossings that were barriers to fish, there was over a hundred kilometers of stream reaches that were unavailable for the cutthroat to go into to spawn. And, and it's simply that simple. So you yeah, can... That's a perfect example, Mark. Exactly. That's exactly what we're talking in, in terms of routine projects. That, that's, that's the perfect example of that. And we don't have the same sort of level of, as I said, like that administrative oversight and, and management and authorization process and where there's offsetting requirements for whatever habitat losses at that smaller scale level, um, the, it, it's not happening. We look at more like avoidance and mitigation measures um, and uh, not recognizing the um, uh, the cumulative, like you said, the cumulative effects and how it's aggregated and magnified across the landscape. But in the perfect example. Where can people find information on OFA's website about these two fisheries management proposals if they want to look for kind of like the nuts and bolts? And when do folks need to provide comments on the proposals? Yeah, so unfortunately with FMZ 10, uh, the comment period closed on November 28th, but there's still room for commenting on um, FMZ 10 fisheries management plan, which closes uh, this coming Monday. Um, actually. So, okay. um, so yeah, so there's still time people, available. People will have the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That will be the homework for all of your listeners. They should go and provide comment on the environmental registry of Ontario, uh, for these things. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, I don't know how much time you have available. We could dive into, um, you know, other regulation proposals too, if you would like, or yeah, well, maybe maybe touch on a few a few of the other key ones to give folks uh, a flavor of kind of the the diversity of things. So we talked about the walleye, a bit on the brook trout. So maybe give us a a snapshot of other fisheries and fish species that are included sure. in these proposals. Yeah, so lake trout would be a, a a good one to touch on. I didn't want to jump in to that one off the bat because it's uh, tends to be a bit of a contentious and complicated species, at least here in Ontario, it seems. So uh, for FMZ 10, the ministry intends to retain the current regulation um, and it's open from January 1st to, and then ends on Labor Day. And it's uh, not more than one greater than 40 centimeters with a sport fishing catch limit of two and a conservation license uh, catch limit uh, of one. So um, lake shore populations in FMZ 10 uh, prior to 2010, uh, historically, just were not doing very, very well at all. So that was when um, there was a, a major, not a major regulation change, but a regulation change was implemented to try and uh, help lake trip populations across the zone. So that was back in 2010. And since then, there's been a couple um, monitoring cycles under the broad scale monitoring program. And there's been signs of improvement, actually. So you would you know, essentially look at that breakpoint analysis and it looks like the regulation uh, likely helped improve lake 
lake trout populations. That said, the historical information and the current BSM broad scale monitoring data still show that um, that lake trout remain stressed to a certain extent. So that's why the proposal would be like, let's keep the regulation uh, the same. So it's showing signs of improvement. So let's stay with that. And really, uh, the OFAH would be supportive of that. Again, it's a contentious subject. Uh, there's a, quite a few anglers and even uh, other organizations that want uh, to remove the not more than one greater than 40 centimeter component to the regulation and go to essentially like a indiscriminate two in one. So no matter what the size, uh, you can keep two under a sport fishing or one under a conservation fishing license. Um, an indiscriminate two in one regulation for lake trout in a lot of FMZs doesn't perform very well though. Uh, the, the model outputs would suggest uh, uh, it's often unsustainable. And uh, there's been research done by Castleman. He's a well-known researcher in Ontario. And uh, he looked at <clears throat> susceptibility of larger egg-bearing female lake trout um, being more susceptible to, to angling from about the midsummer period up until the spawning period. Um, so you could well imagine that if you um, had an indiscriminate two-in-one catch limit, that um, potentially you would have um, uh, more female lake trout during that specific time period uh, being angled, essentially. And we just talked about those significant contributors to the population as well. So if you're potentially removing, um, you know, an unsustainable amount of larger egg-bearing females that you could see the population level consequences that could potentially have. And just any time through the year too, if you could just indiscriminately take whatever fish you catch, um, I would argue it would not necessarily be the best choice for lake trout. They're, um, they're a, you know, slow growing, late to maturity, there's low replacement and recruitment rates for lake trout. So they're especially vulnerable to um, over-harvest and over-exploitation and these sorts of things. So that's where um, we need to be very mindful of these things. So anyway, they could even consider potentially moving towards another size-based regulation like a protected slot or um, uh, maybe other minimum size regulations. Um, just maybe moving towards alternative regulations of that to provide more resilient populations, uh, maybe to um, have them rebound a little bit more quickly compared to the current regulation. But that's at the advisory council level. We offered that suggestion in our feedback, but um, it's really, uh, really dependent on where the council and, you know, anglers and other stakeholders who want to take it. But it's not, it's not a terrible idea. But right now, uh, we can definitely get on board with retaining the current regulations. But it just to provide a you know complete opposite example, in zone 15, they're looking at um, implementing two minimum size regulations, so a 40 centimeter rule and uh, and a 50 centimeter rule. Um, and then introduce a zone-wide no winter fishing on small lakes looking at a restricted winter fishing on large lakes, um, restricting the open water season um, on the front end, for, uh, you know, beginning the open season date on the third Saturday in May and 
closing on uh, Labor Day as opposed to September 30th. And um, so looking really an open water restriction on both large and small lakes and limiting anglers to only one line when angling through the ice on large natural lakes. This is an example of where we would argue that the ministry might be taking things a little too far and that precautionary principle and uh, might be a little bit misguided because under the minimum size regulations of 40 and 50, under the current regulation from January 1st to September 30th, without having the, the no winter fishing or restricted winter fishing season and that restricted open water season, it the lakeshore populations perform really well. Under the model outputs for minimum size regulation, the current regulation, January 1st to September 30th, catch limit of two and one performs quite well. So that's where we would push back quite a bit harder in that example because the the information and the data would suggest that just the minimum size regulations alone do do very well very well so we would just sort of question the ministry then why would you go above and beyond and implement all of these other restrictions on anglers um you know it's it's essentially unnecessary yeah that's that's good that you guys are on on top of that as well because yeah, not not everything has the evidence to to support the changes. So, I mean, it it's really cool. You know, I'm hearing you like your organization is very science and very evidence based, right? Um, what are objectives? What is our data saying? And does this management proposal make sense from a science based approach, right? Logic and and using the evidence so in some cases it is and you're supporting it in other cases you're saying we don't think the evidence is there to say that this is the right lever to pull so um good for you guys yeah yeah i i appreciate it it's probably a a lot of information all at once and that's why it's like i i know lake trout is a a terrible one to kickstart the conversation but like I, you did a good job there in terms of breaking it down it's like fmz 10 you know, there were issues historically. There's been signs of improvement. Lake trout are still stressed, though. So retain that regulation because it, it appears like it's working. Your management strategy back in 2010 and changing the regulation worked. Whereas it's clear that the current regulation in FMZ 15, it's not working well. It's just It just isn't. And so we need to have a regulation change. The minimum size regulations would work really well. Under the current season, under the current catch limit, yes, we support the minimum size regulations, but it's those extra steps that are confusing to us. It's it, The question is just like, why? Why would you, you do that with all the information and data, the science tells us that you don't need to? <laughs> and that's, um, I think, I think that's why people belong to the organization, right? Because they, they want to pay you to do that job to, to look out for, <laughs> for their interests as well, because they want to catch fish. And if they have a chance to catch big fish, then let us catch big fish. Um, if, if not, then conservation needs, needs to take over. So uh, very cool. So any, any kind of other like high level stuff that you want to touch on in the two zones just to let people know a flavor of what's going on um just outside of getting more into the weeds of uh uh the regulations i'm not quite sure if we want to go dive too deeply but you know just generally in terms of fmz 15 the changes are really happening with the cold water fish community 
the uh, the argument from the the ministry side is looking at more conservative regulations in the face of uh, of climate change, where there's an argument to be made there, uh, for sure. I just don't know if uh, anglers are going to be the solution to all of our climate change woes. I think uh, back to land use policies and these practices that are happening at the provincial and level and across Canada is that that's got to be a major um, part of this conversation as well. Um, in terms of FMZ uh, 10, um, there's some other uh, regulation proposals related to uh, a bass is, is an example um, where some pretty significant changes are coming down the pipe too. Um, there's not as much um, like drastic changes being proposed for FMZ 10 compared to FMZ uh, uh, 15. So I think anglers will generally be able to stomach what's being suggested in, in that zone, maybe a little bit uh, easier than FMZ 15, where uh, you know there's some clear issues, for example, with uh, that what's being proposed for lake trout regulations. Um, but yeah, just that the Environmental Registry of Ontario being that hub to provide uh, public comment, I invite anybody to look at uh, what proposals get posted online there. And also um, just to direct people to our website, any of the things that we're working on and in terms of our official feedback, it gets posted there. So one of the tabs is uh, fishing and fisheries. And then within that link, it goes to um, like an actions table, select the actions. And uh, you'll see all of our official submissions that are posted there. Um, and so people can reach out to me if they have trouble finding it. Um, I definitely don't mind uh, chatting to people and directing them to, uh, to things that we've been working on and, and involved with. It's, uh, it's a huge part of my job from being a part of these advisory councils and representing the organization and the angling community there and uh, working at the federal level and um, on all these different modules to, you know, for the management and conservation of fish and fish habitat <clears throat> uh, across Canada, and then also working on plans and fishing regulations like these get, that get posted at the environmental registry. So how many total fisheries management zones are there in Ontario? Yeah, there's 20. Okay. Yeah, so there's 20 and there were, countless divisions before we uh, implemented the ecological framework for recreational fisheries management in Ontario, there was all those divisions. And now we just have 20 fisheries management zones. So just um, basically dissects Ontario in all those different ecological units. Right. Okay. So, so are the purple, the management proposals, do they kind of like, are they staggered? Do they come up every like couple years for this type of review and change? And so, yeah yeah so they they are a little it depends what level um the council is at so when effm that framework was first implemented in 2008 there were um, advisory councils were, were kick-started um but not not every fmz has a council though yet and so um there was some some delays with some aspects of these sorts of things so in some fmz's immediately there were fisheries management plans that were developed and uh and, and published whereas you know fmz 15 the advisory council wasn't established until 2017 so almost a decade after the framework was implemented 
and almost a decade after other councils were already established and were already like actively working and being a part of the fisheries management planning process. And uh, FMZ 16, which is kind of, uh, how do I describe that? Just Southern Ontario, just to generalize, um, Southwestern Ontario, I should say. But uh, it doesn't have a council. It doesn't have a management plan. And it's something that we really push for, like to, to adequately um, and effectively manage these, these zones and the fisheries within them, we need, we need councils, we need fisheries management plans. And to not have those in that zone is, is uh, it's, a, it's a big misstep. And so we're really pushing hard for, for getting a council developed there and really kickstarting the fisheries management pl- planning process. And it's something that we, you know, are really pushing down the pipe and, and want to see, uh, want to see happen. So, yeah. So just to get back to your initial question there, things are kind of sporadic. There's different stages. Some councils were kickstarted, they develop plans and then um, they're, they're not meeting as frequently now. So we want to re-engage and reactivate those councils that, um, have kind of lost that momentum, whereas others are really functioning at a high level. They're meeting really regularly, um, and there's a there's a lot of good examples of those across the province too. But it's um, it's another priority of ours um, as an organization, and we see it maybe more so than other people is, uh, you know, again reactivating councils that aren't um, meeting as regularly, getting uh, fisheries management plans um, implemented. Um, and doing the work on the back end for these things too. It's one thing to come up with a fisheries management plan, but on the other end, if you're not following up with the goals and objectives and everything that that's identified in the plan, and if you're not also um, looking at the performance of these regulations and maintaining the monitoring assessment that you're committing to before, and then reporting on that and following up with the advisory council, then you know what's the purpose of a fisheries management plan <laughs> you know Absolutely. so there's a whole like time series that needs to occur from like you know having an fmz established under the framework and then establishing a, a council going through the fisheries management planning process and behind the scenes gathering all the data that we need from the broad scale monitoring program that feeds into the fisheries management plan the implementation stage and then the the review that goes on afterward and then you know engaging the council and consulting with them at that stage too so there's all of the steps there is what's important in terms of the fisheries management process no that makes a lot of sense so there's so so kind of what i wanted to leave folks with uh, especially in ontario is um so there's going to be future opportunities like these two zones uh mm-hmm. for for public comment there is also what you're saying is a lot of work to get councils and other zones set up and get those rolling uh, i would imagine that when anglers are aware of this they're putting your support behind the federation to be pushing the province to get these other councils set up that's an important advocacy role that anglers can play by by communicating with you and being a member of the organization and one of the other really valuable things that I've taken from this conversation that I think can be valuable for people across the country is 
is understand so this whole understanding that I've gained about how Ontario approaches uh, fisheries management is has been really enlightening for me uh, and I thank you for that is there's some great examples here for folks across the country to look at Ontario's case their approach their management regimes this whole idea of the two um, the sport and the conservation license wow I just I kind of think of like the things that other jurisdictions could possibly do with that idea to balance these conservation of fish populations with the way that different segments of the population want to interact with this resource was was it was enlightening for me that that was that was really cool and, and hopefully it was for other listeners as well so even if you're not in Ontario just kind of listening to this conversation and and, and going, wow, man, there's resources for you to dig into and contact Adam. And, um, you know, maybe there's other councils and other, you know, roundtables and stuff elsewhere in the province and, or elsewhere in the country where folks can be like, hey, let's bring this Ontario example to the idea. It might work for us. It could be the solution we're looking for. And, and I think that's why this was a incredibly valuable conversation to have with you in the context of this podcast, which is you know, reaching people across, across country on it. So I, I thank you for all of that, Adam. Great, yeah, great breakdown. Just uh, well said there. You're, you're a lot better at capturing uh, what I say and just condensing it a little bit. So uh, I appreciate that. And, Teamwork. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's uh, why you're the host and I'm the interviewee, I guess. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm the one learning. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe just to sort of, close off um yeah visit the website ontario federation of anglers and hunters uh website uh i invite anybody to look about at our official um uh feedback that gets posted to the website as well contact me uh anytime and uh you know again if you're not a member of an you know an organization conservation organization that's bigger than yourself uh i think you should be if you're an angler hunter uh or trapper and uh, yeah, Mark, I, I appreciate it. It was uh, it, it was fun. I was a little nervous at first, but uh, but I think it went okay. <laughs> oh, it went it went awesome. Thank you, Adam Weir, fisheries biologist with the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters. Thanks again for all of that great breakdown on the fisheries management proposals um, that are key right now that the federation is engaging the province of Ontario on. So on behalf of Ontario anglers and anglers all across Canada, thanks for, uh, for taking the time. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.